Yeah. So you've been working today already, yeah? Yeah, done a patient already this morning. Wow. You're a busy lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a busy lady. So uh, you've uh, been NHS, well, were NHS worker for 20 years. Yeah, long time. What did you do in NHS? So um, I took a bit of a roundabout route to where I've ended up. So um, I, like many people, decided I wanted to do psychology at uni. Really fascinated with the world of psychology. Mm. Did an undergraduate degree in psychology. And always intended that I'd be a clinical psychologist. Yeah. And then uh, saw the routing that took you down clinical psychology and how long it was and thought, oh, I don't know if that's for me. Um, and I had a job at the time in a, um, what at the time they called a resource centre. So for people with kind of quite enduring difficulties. So um, more serious conditions like schizophrenia and bipolar, those kind of things in the community. And I worked as an activity worker there and I worked alongside an occupational therapist who was delivering lots of interventions and lots of support for the people there. Um, and I thought, you know what, that looks like a lot of fun. fun. <laughs> yes. Um, and at the time there was a real national shortage of OTs. Okay. There were about 20% national shortage and the, they were paying for training. So I went straight in from my psychology degree, straight into training as an occupational therapist. Um, and then I specialised in mental health because I knew that was what I wanted to do. So I was an OT for about eight years. And then I had the opportunity to do postgraduate training in cognitive behavioural therapy through um, what became the kind of national agenda for what we call improving access to psychological therapy. So people accessing therapy more readily in GP surgeries. Mm. Um, and I became part of that national program. So the service that I worked for was one of the first sites in the country. Um, and I worked for them for more than 10 years and then um, found my way to private practice. <laughs> cool. You've been doing this a long time. Yes. I so you know, your, you know your stuff clearly. Hopefully. Yeah. I've worked in lots of different areas of mental health, um, which I think is quite unusual. Yeah. Um, so I've got, I guess I've got quite a broad range of experiences. There's a lot of different titles as well, which yeah, yeah. for myself, like, I'm, I never know the difference too strongly between like, you know, occupational therapist, psychotherapist yeah. um and then you've got cbt yeah. and lp yeah um but obviously when you've done you know i mean how many clients like cause you, can you imagine how many sessions you've done i'm not sure whether you've ever sat there <laughs> a before. lot it's probably thousands yeah right? i mean certainly in my nhs cbt role i would routinely see five or six people in a day yeah so yeah, we're talking the yeah a lot of people yeah. and then i worked in i've worked in inpatient services yes. um, for quite a while and um I've worked in a really specialist um, service, working with really young people experiencing psychosis for the first time. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, I've probably touched quite a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. What would you say is like the, Do you have you noticed any underlying theme? So I asked Lydia this, who's a, a, a psychologist, and she said, yes, she <laughs> noticed the thing. I'll wait to, to announce it until I hear from you first. Do you, yeah, do you notice anything that's, that's common in pretty much all of the, the the clients that you work with different stories i'm sure different stories but an underlying reason why they might require some form of therapy childhood trauma is a really big one yeah um and when i say trauma it doesn't necessarily have to be like a big classic way you might think about trauma like something uh, like childhood sexual abuse or domestic violence it can be quite you know what outwardly somebody might see as quite a small life event but is experienced by that individual in quite a traumatic way. That's that, a small life event. Yeah, well, not not those, well, but it okay, could be yeah. something small. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, trauma's a strange one, isn't it? It's very relative. It, it, it is. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of shame behind some trauma because it doesn't feel justified that something you would consider so small has such an impact yes, on you. Yes, it can be hugely shame-based, yeah. Yeah. Um, lots of esteem-based stuff, certainly with the women that I work with. Um, and a huge amount of just the demands of general life and our expectations that we place on all on ourselves and society and culture kind of dictates that we should be having all our poo together all of the time. <laughs> that is not the yeah, case. Yeah, that yeah. is that is the dream. Like yeah. get all uh, get everything yeah. sorted, get everything right. So uh, obviously now that you're you're working with private clients, right? Yeah. I'm guessing through NHS somebody goes to a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they are either offered some form of medication or treatment or both. Ideally both. Ideally in both. In most cases, that would be both, yeah. Then wait and list, and yep. then they're, they're in front of you and you work together to help them. Yeah. Do you notice any difference in, um, between NHS clients and private clients in terms of if, you invest, if you're the one investing in yourself, yeah. um, is there more urgency from that person because they've said... I'm going to get the help versus I feel like I should be giving it on the NHS. I think there the can be, but I think people underestimate the process people go to before asking for help on the NHS. Yeah, sure. And yeah. that's the really difficult thing is that for a lot of people, that journey's been two years before even getting in the room of a GP and having that conversation. It's really lovely to see the younger people I work with that is far less problematic actually the stigma is dramatically less um with the teenagers and people in the young their young 20s that i work with but certainly people in their 30s 40s and beyond it's taken a tremendous amount of courage maybe maybe three or four attempts to even make a phone call to do that i understand that so at the point in which they have that conversation with the gp they are highly motivated they will have put themselves through quite a degree of distress Mm. um and facing a lot of demons to kind of get there and have that conversation and i think that's one of the difficult things about the waiting list because they're kind of desperate to indicate just going to be seen and then they're told unfortunately because of the service provision like they've got to wait so um i think I've seen some really highly motivated people in the NHS who are really, really, really ready and will do anything if I told them to stand on their head for a week and yeah. <laughs> make them feel better, they would. Um, but I think I think the motivation can work both ways in private clients, actually. Of course, yeah. Um, because you've also got the insurance ends of things. And I guess if, if the cost is not too much damaging on your wallet, then yeah. again, you might have the opposite effect where, well, well it's only 50 quid now. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, um, yeah, and but I think in general... They, the people with who come privately, are very prepared to invest in that overall bigger picture about their well-being. They do see it quite rightly so, like a gym membership. Mm. You know, we invest a lot in our physical health often, um, but we don't necessarily think about investing that same money in our sure. mental health, and that can lead to quite interesting therapy processes because in the NHS, quite rightly so, because of the demand on services. You know, when somebody is better or on the good route to recovery, then you would say goodbye to them and discharge them and, you know, prepare them with support plans and information to continue that journey independently. In uh, working privately, people often tend to value the space and the 
connection with you in the relationship you've built and actually they're more than happy to invest in doing that on a slightly longer term basis mm. even if it might be like a monthly check-in for example yeah and they, they see that as kind of part of what helps to keep them on track that makes sense uh, cheers by the way i never cheers. Cheers <laughs> um so if the stigma is so much uh, like you know uh, more open than it than it used to be yeah, and people definitely. are more willing to reach out, go to the doctors, ask yeah. for help, uh, vocalise how they feel. Why do you think the statistics then are not following suit? So the trend of statistics is alarmingly going in the wrong direction, especially yes. for young girls. Yeah. Uh, why? Wh- where do you think that's gone wrong? If, if stigma is, let's say that's been pushed aside a little bit, like why aren't we seeing improvements? I think some of it is uh, the pressure of social media driven. You know, I think particularly if you think about that female grief of clients, you know, young people, in general, but particularly young women, the focus on body image, on perfection, um, that likability factor is really stressed and is increasing, you know, distress. Sure, you yeah. Know, we don't live in this, things like, you know, the effects of bullying and things, they're not isolated to school anymore, they go beyond that. But I also think we don't, we've kind of culturally, and I'm an I'm a 80s child, so I can talk about that quite freely, um, we were kind of sold that we can have it all we can work we can raise a family we can do all those things um but actually often families and myself included we work we juggle a lot of things and that doesn't always mean the space and emotional dialogue for teaching our young people how to regulate emotions they're kind of pulled into an adult world very quickly um and they're not necessarily given opportunity to learn and develop how to regulate distress, how to make themselves feel better in those situations. Do you think we know as adults? No, we don't, because who teaches us? Yeah, nobody. No, nobody I mean, us. so commonly people will come to me, I'm, I'm, although I'm a CBT therapist, I use something called compassion-focused therapy a tremendous amount with the clients I work with. And I'll talk about this concept of self-compassion with people, and you just hear the, like, the penny almost drop, in, like, that's a thing? <laughs> like, <laughs> I can do that to ourselves? And I think we have this culture of do more, be more, do more, do, you know, it's just all more, 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 right? I've reached that goal, what's the next goal? We don't stop mm. and think about what we've achieved or what our strengths are. There's not that emphasis on what we need um, emotionally or physically to be at our best necessarily. It's always just about pushing ourselves more. And actually that drive, although that drive can be helpful in getting us to where we want to be, it can be really destructive. It can come and bite us on the bum as well. Where do we go from here? Because we have now platforms where everyone can express themselves, mm-hmm. say what they want, mm-hmm. <laughs> t- say how they feel. Yeah. We have um, like the feminist movement, for example, and that's um, that's starting to, I guess, achieve what was set out to achieve. Starting to. Yeah. <laughs> but if all these things are going in the right direction, still why why are we not seeing the results that we want to see? If If we are progressive, Yet the stats are saying, well, hold on, more people are killing themselves than ever. More people have stress, depression. I think I heard something scary, like 60% of people now have at some point been on some form yeah. of antidepressant. And that's that's frightening, frightening but, numbers. But but maybe that's because we're getting what we want. people are, are we getting what we want? Or are we being well, sold think, what we think we want? Um, no, I think, well, uh, here's another question. Like, Do we know what's good for us? Not always. No, <laughs> there's very few people who, who I know that really truly know what's good for them because it takes a lot of introspection to know what's good for you. You know, I think we measure success in culturally. We tend to measure success in 
doing, being, having, not in happiness, contentment, experience, you know, just being okay with ourselves and being happy. Actually, for me, that's the measure of success. You know, when me and my husband talk about what we want for our girls, I say I, I don't want anything for them other than to be happy and mm. happy in their own skin and the choices they make, you know, whatever that's doing profession. I think there is there is this emphasis on what being successful is. Yeah, I'm happy. I mean, what, what, yeah, what, what is, is, yeah, yeah, what exactly. is it? Um, <laughs> I know I'm, I feel more fulfilled in my life, not necessarily when I'm happy, but when I've got some form of purpose mm-hmm. or a mission. And again, not one that's driven through material collection of items. It's no. like, oh, I know why I'm alive today and I've got something yep. worthy of doing. Yep. It might even just be reading and writing. It, yep. It's, you know, it's not a material exchange. No. But there has to be some form of worthiness for me that's almost challenging for me to, to feel happy, like yeah. any challenge, because yeah. without that, I, I, don't, I don't really get what I want. And I think most people are the same. I think when we say the word happy, you strive for comfort. Mm. And comfort doesn't always get you happiness. It gets you what kills you, which overweight, stay in your house. That's what a lot of comfort gets you. Does it? It's com- Absolutely, yeah. Could comfort be other things? Well, it depends whether your growth is one of your values. You don't grow in comfort, that's for sure. Like you can't grow watching Netflix. It's interesting that you define growing is Netflix and and kind of that idea of comfort. So growing is only striving. No, it's not striving. It's been the position that demands a little bit more of you. I think, yeah, for sure. Like m- most, and maybe it's a, a masculine trait. I'm not sure, but most. Well, the guys I work with want to grow, and that might mean be a, a better dad. Yeah, it's not growth in in bank balance. No, for some of them it is. Yeah, uh, but. A lot of the guys, in fact, a lot of the guys I've worked with have achieved that, so they know that's not the answer. Yeah. So we've a lot of us have collected the material stuff. Yeah. And we had to go there to understand because you hear it when you're young, don't you? you know, the car won't make you happy, the house won't yeah. make you happy, and you're like, "Fuck you, it will. It I'm will. going to get it." Yes. And then you get it, and you're like, "Shit, they were right." So yeah. you go searching for other things, and I've found it in growth. Yeah. And growth might just, like I say, mean writing every day for an hour. Yeah. And growth is becoming a better writer over time. But I think the idea that comfort has to be from it sounds like I might be wrong but it sounds like in your head kind of the idea of comfort equals laziness it kind of it equals sitting still and actually Mm. there can be time to sit still that's not necessarily oh for sure like everything's paradoxical sitting still is if if you think about your physical training if you don't rest sufficiently you will get injured and we're the same emotionally there is a time and a place to do that and it depends where you are and the idea of growth that you talk about um have you heard some maslow's hierarchy yeah. that kind of yeah. yeah that's okay if you've got those bottom structures in place yes. if you haven't got to worry about those things but for lots of people who struggle with their mental health those real basics aren't there they don't have that framework to work at those higher levels of mas- <laughs> yeah of mastery so actually it's really really important that comfort is acknowledged that that can come in really simple comfort can be those basic things it can be warmth it can be sitting still it can be getting sufficient rest it can be listening to how you feel listening to your physical health seeking out affection from loved ones yeah of course and i think this all depends where you're starting from yeah so if you're somebody let's just say who's unhappy but you're you know you're physically capable you've got all your needs met which is where the comfort lives by the way when you've got all your needs met it's like oh yeah got a roof over my house i can eat i think then then we can talk more about recovery because for me recovery comes after a period of pushing yourself a little bit like that's mm-hmm. when you would recover so you do the work which is rewarding and then you learn because it is a skill 
especially for us guys like some of the guys I teach and myself in particular I'm terrible at recovery so I had to learn yeah and that's because you're naturally quite driven I think well no it's not actually I'm not naturally driven I was incredibly lazy (laughs) okay but that's why I swung the other way okay so most things like a pendulum aren't they it's like if at 15 16 I had no drive and no resilience Mm -hmm. and no mental health like what I would call good resilient you know mental resilience so I went the opposite way, mm-hmm. almost like you say, to the point where you push, you push, you strive, you yeah. strive. It's too much. It's, yeah. it's not healthy. It, it feels like the right thing to do, but that that's kind of how it occurs. And, and for me, you have to sometimes cross these lines to find the, the middle ground. Like yeah. you, you sway too far that way. You sway too far on the lazy side. Then you push too hard. And over time, you learn like, yeah, I do need rest. I do but need to push. It's not a static thing either, is it? No, In it's that not. Some behaviours you might consider to be kind of so when you talk about rest for me as a therapist i think about the idea of soothe okay and what soothes us emotionally and physically um and that active striving growth bit that you talk about i think about as a drive kind of system and you can have two two experiences of the same behavior that outwardly might look like one thing but could be the other so i'm just thinking of an example for me so for me not anymore because I don't get a lot of time to do it at the moment. But previously, I used to run quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I used to run marathons. And a, nothing better for me than a cold, frosty run. I lo- loved running in the winter along the canal. Beautiful nature around me. One of my favorite albums on, listen to it, Crunchy Puddles all the <laughs> way. Soothe, soothe, soothe. That's that oxytocin-driven, mm. restorative... Yeah fire blanket if you like to the adrenaline and that threat system which is interesting because it's not comfortable what you're you're mentioning well that's the thing about comfort isn't it i it's that objective yeah but yeah it's like what you've just described to me sounds pretty cool as well yeah some people will be listening thinking that sounds horrendous (laughs) and i'm like you can find comfort in pushing yourself yeah because you know it's good for you but equally the long hot bath with a banana <laughs> and a chocolate spread sandwich After. and a cup of tea in the bath afterwards, afterwards. Yeah. yeah but you weren't that uh, yeah but i could also enjoy that without the <laughs> that's the difference yeah see this is where i, <laughs> I, I it depends it wouldn't be shame for me in doing if, that without no it. but what if you were four stone heavier and enjoying the if i was peanut ha- butter? Well, if i was ha- if i was happy doing that and i didn't have the cognitions and the self-criticism about it then that yeah. would be okay it depends and that's my point it depends on what motivates the behavior so that could be one so you'd see me out on the canal running that's what uh, you know somebody objectively would see and equally you could see exactly the same run but a week before a race when my knee's been tweaking me all week and i haven't ticked off that final run on my training plan Mm. and actually in my head i'm thinking is this knee going to hold out should i even be doing this somebody would see the same behavior you would see me running sure but that would be about drive that would be that would be driven from a place of fear if i don't get this run in i'm not going to be good enough i'm not going to get in i'm not going to get my the time i want i'm not going to finish you know fear about the shame of having raised money and not finishing the race but the behavior you would see would be the same and that's the thing about drive and soothe is that they can be they can be flexible they, they're not static things so behaviors that we associate with soothing ourselves and feeling better can also be actually quite destructive and send us back to where we fear so if you think about that run pushing myself i might then get the injury 
that sends me back to the whole reason why I did the run in the first place, which is I'm not going to be able to do this. I really have wrecked yeah. my knee now. Yeah, it makes sense. I can see I can see another side of that where like you could prove that you've got the re- mental resilience to yes. get. Th- th- this is what I mean. Everything's so paradoxical that yeah, it is. It's hard to. This is where introspection for me is good because you, you start to get better at listening to what the right thing to do yes. is. So there's times where it, there's push and there's times where it's pull. And that's that's a hard skill to get in tune with. And like you say, the word soothe, I think us guys are pretty terrible at, I, th- I don't even think we'd use that word because yeah, we're just rubbish at it. And it's, it's not about, it's not necessarily, well, we're all rubbish at it. it like <laughs> I, I've met very, very few people, yeah, you true. know, I've, I've spent the last 20 years trying to work on my own soothe system, but it is useful to think about it like this underused muscle that we all have the capacity to self-soothe, but we don't get much opportunity, particularly as adults or in in our culture, to practice it. And there shouldn't be shame about doing it. It's Mm. it's absolutely evolutionary driven, really important part of who we are. If you think about, we plunked a newborn baby in here now screaming, what would you instinctively do? Pick it up, hold it. Yeah, try and pick it up, soothe it. it, sway it, vocalize nice, calming sounds to it. Maybe give it, give yeah, it a yeah. jiggle. You might be asking the wrong person here, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and we do that because those things are soothing. That is innate in us as a human mm. species to be soothed by those things. We don't necessarily think about offering us ourselves those same things for distress in adult life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those kind of basic soothe mechanisms are really important to tap into. So when I think about the idea of comfort, that word comfort you used, I think about enveloping myself in a warm, soft blanket or physical touch, yeah. even the gesture of holding my own hand or seeking out a hug from my husband or my children. And it, that, that's comfort, that's accessing my soothe system. Mm. And then when we switch that on, it generates all those fabulous stuff we need, all that oxytocin, that dopamine, that serotonin that really helps act as a fire blanket to that threat system. And if you want to work out whether you're in a behavior pattern that's helpful or potentially tripping you up, it's really useful to listen to that threat response and think about, am I experiencing some of those threat emotions? Because if you're feeling fear, can I do this? Am I physically fit enough to do this challenge, whatever? If you're feeling, um, you know, angry, that fight and flight bit, anger, frustration, you're probably in a place of threat. If you're feeling shame and guilt, which we don't often think about as being threat emotions, but they are. If you think about us as a tribal species, if you think about that evolutionary idea, um, shame and guilt came because the likelihood is that you'd done something wrong and therefore you would be isolated from your tribe and you would be more vulnerable. You'd be picked off by predators, you you know, you wouldn't be brought part of the kill, mm. all of those things. So it, it makes sense that that's a threat emotion. And similarly, people don't always think about sadness as being a threat emotion, but it absolutely is. Because if you're depressed, you don't hunt. Mm. <laughs> if you're depressed, you don't nurse your children. You don't socially interact with your tribe and you become isolated. And then again, you're more prone to illness to all those things yeah i couldn't agree more i I think you're right i don't think we would think of shame as a fear-based emotion but yeah you're right and if if you're accessing any of the you know if you're experiencing any of those four things then you're more likely to drift into kind of what i would see as drive that kind of striving behavior that can trip you up doesn't always but it's a fine line it can lead you right back to some of those difficult feelings sure so how do we go about squeezing the most out of life then without killing ourselves? 
<laughs> um, I think slowing down, <laughs> even if you can't slow down practically, slowing down emotionally. You can't, how can you offer yourself what you need if you don't know how you feel in any moment? Yeah, well, when I was listening to you talk a minute ago, I was like, I don't think there's many people that are aware of how they feel, no. how tired they are, how yeah. angry they are, how whatever they are. So us passing down healthy lessons to our children, unless we're good at that, mm -hmm. it's like you can see how generationally it's 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 worse and worse and worse, right? And I think there's also links to that idea that we talked about, about success and happiness before. Western culture has this big emphasis on... I want to feel these things. I don't want to feel these things. I want to feel happy. I want to feel content. I want to feel relaxed. Um, I want to feel confident. I don't want to feel shame, guilt. But actually, they are a core, really valuable, important part of human existence. You can't have the good stuff without the bad stuff. They're two sides of the same coin. And instead of labeling them as good or bad, if we think about them in a much more Eastern philosophy, we start to see them as communication tools for us. You know, if I'm feeling, you know, shame or guilt have I done something wrong or is that disproportionate if I'm feeling angry has somebody violated my rights do I need to stand up for myself a little bit if I'm feeling you know sad and depressed well that probably tells me I'm doing something that isn't useful for me it doesn't serve me anymore so maybe I need to make some change in that regard if I'm feeling happy then I want to do more of it so often we try and avoid we try and squash the difficult emotions because we don't want to feel them I'd rather they weren't part of my life and I'm just gonna distract myself with all the good stuff but actually all emotions are temporary the good stuff's temporary the bad stuff's temporary you shouldn't fear those negative emotions they're not negative they're just experiences and if we start to see them as tuning into and listening to what our experience is telling us in the moment then we're better placed to respond from a self-compassionate self-caring place one one thousand percent I, I think going back to my original point about you know the comfort that we find in certain things such as um where most people not everyone yeah. of course will find it in a distraction yeah so yeah and that takes you away from asking those great questions that you've just spoken of that's the thing it's numbing it's sedation it's yeah. like when i'm drinking i don't need to ask those yes. questions you know exactly like, when you talk about the eating and the drinking the all those things absolutely they can mm. be negative because they can be squashing that could be a difficult emotion i work a lot with people with emotional eating difficulties and what we start off with is getting in tune to what people are experiencing because they're very, very skilled at being highly avoidant of any feeling or thought. <laughs> is that a is that a, na a subconscious habit that they've developed? It's a coping or, strategy. Or do you yeah. think it's done with intention of I'm I'm going to block these feelings out? Um, it it can be both, but I think for most people it becomes a very automatic. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it it's highly adaptive at one point in their life to do it. So if you think about being a child growing up in, uh, going, th let's think about something like really quite normal in inverted commas that, you know, is not particularly, somebody would necessarily think as being particularly traumatic. So um, you're an eight year old and you're going through your parents' divorce. Okay, very common situation that an eight year old might find them in. As an eight-year-old, you might well not feel particularly empowered to talk about how you're feeling about that breakup with your mum and dad because you don't want to upset them. Or um, you're worried they'll get angry if you say they want to stay together or whatever. So you will find the path of least resistance to enable you to cope at that time. And for lots of eight-year-olds, that's an open snap cupboard. Or 
God, I absolutely do it with my girls. I think most parents do. If you need to distract a child or keep them quiet, chuck them a, <laughs> a biscuit or a, you mm. know. And you can think about that eight-year-old. Okay, mummy and daddy are talking right now. Can you go up to your bedroom and have your PlayStation on? Here's, here's some Pringles or whatever to take up with us. And before you know that association with, I've got all these difficult emotions, I've got all these things, but I've got nowhere to put them, get soothed quite effectively by that distracting self with technology or distracting self with food and that at that time is highly adaptive that might be the only you know the only access that young person has to something which will effectively help them get through that tricky period but then it becomes a go-to strategy yeah sure does that make sense I've got, it makes total sense i'm just thinking back to you know when we mentioned like the the strive and desire to be you know mm-hmm. career focused the best parent yeah. ever I'm like what you've just described. Like, isn't like most parents would do that, wouldn't they? And and with good intention. Like, it's it's good seemed, intention. Yeah, They're managing their like own stuff, exactly. And they don't want them to yeah. be part. It's not. It's not out of neglect. Or, oh no, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, for sure. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, I guess there should be some leniency though when you're a parent, right? And like knowing that you're not always going to get it right. You'll get it right very few times. Yeah. But that's that's like <laughs> yeah i mean if that's the worst you do to mess your kid up like yeah. i think you've done all right but it's so hard cause, yeah i mean well, it, unless we know unless we know ourselves so well and we're always on top of our game then we're always going to make little decisions like that that might not be the best for for the future oh, that's not about shaming that parent yeah. i do it all the time but it's it's also the challenge that of the complexity of human existence it's not it, it's a human condition mm. that as parents as adults we have to manage our managing our own emotion doesn't get any easier no matter how old no. you are so if you're trying to manage you're trying to manage your own stuff as well as make space course, yeah. for to try and change that tactic of next time i won't send my youngster to the room like do, do you think there should be a tension put on that and think well how will, am i better off dealing with this next time or, or do you think there's yeah. just some things that are so like I'm human, I can't cope with everything. So for now, this this has to be the way. I think it's balance. It's yeah. the self-compassion of given what I was dealing with at that time, I made the best choice that I could. Uh, and that's okay, I won't always get it right. How hard is that to do what you've just said? Like <laughs> yeah. that That's yeah. the self-soothe bit. That's yeah, that sure. practicing that. No one does that. Hu- they do. <laughs> yeah. It just takes a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work. And you think yeah. about growth. If you want to really grow, yeah, for getting sure. in touch with self-soothe and self-compassion is a game changer because yeah. there, there isn't, you are human. We're all human. And the nice thing about that model of self-compassion is it isn't about mental ill health or mental health. It's just about the curse of being human. We have tricky human brains that trip us up all the time. Um, and, really the only way that we can survive and soothe ourselves in the busy chaos of life with all those complex human emotions is to offer ourselves comfort first it's that idea of the classic scenario that you hear of applying your own oxygen mask in the plane before other people's and it's so true you know as as parents as adults we need to start making time for our own mental health and self-reflection to enable us to have more space so I absolutely toss my girls a packet of crisps or a biscuit sometimes to yeah. get them out of the way. But I also, I'm conscious that I do that. So at the end of each day, we bookend each day. We think about, okay, what was, the, what was the best thing about today? What was the thing that was trickiest? What did you want to change about today? Having some space, acknowledging emotions, like how often, and we say it to our friends, our family, oh, you're all right. You know, somebody's, somebody's comes with sadness or grief or anger and we immediately want to put it right. Yeah. 
and it's just an experience if you think about it in that eastern philosophy particularly with things like grief like grief is a really healthy process like you don't need to make it better for somebody of course it's hard but the challenge for that is you you have to be able to tolerate your own distress at seeing other people distressed Mm. and that can be really hard for people to do to sit with the discomfort that somebody i love is expressing difficult emotions and not fixing it just sitting alongside them with that validating that experience not saying it'll be all right i think just you saying that will be really reassuring to a lot of people when you say that grief is healthy and normal absolutely because a lot of us fight emotions like that and we bury them and then they come back to bite us in the ass like years later or 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 we never resolve them exactly and that's where that drive bit that we talked about can be destructive because it if it comes from a place of sadness or fear that we can get into well i've just got to keep going i've just got to keep things together i've just got i've just got it i've just got to if only i can distract myself if if i just get that job if i just do this if i do and we can plow ourselves into projects to try and mitigate or compensate something that's just a natural process and will run its course yeah and some of that can be really helpful constructive coping it's not all bad but it's thinking about sometimes it might cross a line where you're pursuing something with you know destructive levels of dogged determination and it's coming to bite you on the ass so think about think about um, that idea of whether it serves you or not anymore sometimes things serve us for a particular amount of time in a particular situation and then actually they start taking away from us and depleting us but because they've served us once we're sometimes reluctant to walk away from them or let go yeah absolutely and that happens a lot with work situations i'm sure one of the one of the like really helpful things that i've done for years now is journal just Mm -hmm. in the morning and in the evening 100 percent. yeah and it teaches someone like myself who never really knew how to ask good Mm -hmm. questions it kind of gives you those questions and that guy and you, you do you start to look back over your day and you're like do you know what? i'm proud of the way i handled this or yeah. proud of how i treated that person i wish i'd have done a little bit better here yeah. and then you know the follow-on questions are oh, well, what might you do different next time and it, rather than it just to be about what you've got done and there is a little bit of that in there it's it's more about yeah like your behaviors your actions your intention how you've treated people gratitude and it just puts a bit more attention on who who you are as a person versus what you've got done yeah. And that's changed my entire life, that whole framework of like, okay, your success in these areas is cool, but just focus on becoming the best man you can be, the best mm-hmm. person you can be, the best son, the best friend, the best co. And th- the way that gets hard is where, so if, if, if I was to see you suffering, there would be empathy. Mm-hmm. If I was to see myself suffering, probably less so on my front. That's it's easier to be empathetic towards someone that's else. That's the self-compassion bit and how sure. hard it is. Yeah, exactly. it is. So it is. one of the things you might want to, switch up and think about changing with journaling uh, journaling is definitely something that i would encourage but for mm. a lot of people journaling is very focused on uh the difficult emotions and the angst for want of a better word in a day and rumination about that and although that can be helpful to a point in terms of expressing it it can be really useful to then make that a more self-compassionate response to that situation so the way to think about it is like if I was writing this to my best mate or my mom or whoever, you know, would I be saying those things about it? So if you, for example, had a conflict with somebody or you just haven't done something in the way that you'd want to, thinking about what would I say to a friend about 
the fact they're being hard on themselves about how they handled that situation. That always works well to yeah. um, kind of like detach yeah. f- from yourself for a bit and view yourself like you were someone that you cared about. Yeah, because you're right. We often find it really, we have those compassionate skills because we can offer it to mm. other people. But often we have rules about self-compassion. So if I were to apply that same kindness and care to myself, maybe I wouldn't be as driven. Maybe I'd get lazy. Maybe. And often we have fears about those. And I think in therapy, what we do is we test out those ideas and that actually self-compassion doesn't create self, you know, creating self-compassion as a personal culture and in our organizations or education system which is something i'm hugely passionate about actually people thrive in that nobody thrives in a place of threat because from a biological evolutionary place all that matters is where's the predator where am i am i safe and alive it absolutely squashes creativity it squashes emotional connection our ability to relate and be authentic and those are things that all thrive in a place of compassion and soothing because it's oxytocin driven it's safe it's that maslow's hierarchy everything's okay so i can reach those higher levels yeah no Uh, one of the reasons i gave up chasing like a big business because it was it was heading that way i looked at all the super successful businessmen like you do when you're a young business owner you look at like your steve jobs and all these and then you start really like diving into uh, like who they are and it's not i'm not for one second saying they're bad people but they're often driven by a lot of insecurity yeah that's why they're so goddamn successful and driven like yeah. they will not fail they dead and and they will do anything and that's about that drive being yeah counterproductive because sure. yes on paper they've got everything but they still wake up every morning with fear in their belly that it's going to come crashing around down around uh, absolutely and i've yeah. worked with enough men now who are you know hugely successful financially but my god they're miserable yeah you know they're, they're they're destroyed in other areas and they've it's hurt them because they've woken up at 45 50 and they're like what the fuck have i yeah, done they've lost 15 years of their life to chasing <sighs> something More. they realize that they yeah. uh, people often create a gilded cage for themselves and then yeah. they have to maintain it and it's that idea of you shouldn't be in a job where you have to keep doing it to be able to afford the lifestyle of the holiday <laughs> that mitigates and compensates for that. You know, often the clients I work with will say, yeah, but I couldn't I couldn't do that because we wouldn't be able to keep the house. I couldn't just leave work, even though I'm here because it's making me horrendously depressed and stressed and it's ruining my marriage. But I couldn't walk away from it because we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to have the house and we wouldn't be able to go to Antigua for two weeks in the winter like we always have done maybe you wouldn't need that holiday in Antigua if you weren't doing the job. Fucking damn right. <laughs> maybe. So true. Maybe you will lose the house anyway because yeah. your marriage is going to fall around your ears if you don't attend to this. It's crazy. There was this amazing, I wish I, uh, I could remember where this was from, but there was this study done on people that like work harder in jobs that they don't like to get a pay rise. Yeah. And they had all this information about where they spent the money. And it was on things like Venetian blinds. Yeah. On nice carpets. Yeah on an upgrade of the car that was already quite expensive. And you're like, oh my God, you're trading time economics. Like you're giving away time and then you're spending it on things that you've pretty much already got, like that satisfy you in a job that you really, really do not like and that hurts you. But that's hard for a lot of people to let go of because so often that status, that success is what defines their esteem they're actually very unconfident in who they are as a person because they haven't invested any time in yes. getting to know themselves. They've always been molding themselves and shaping themselves and doing and 
you know on that treadmill of life to get there and if you take away that that is terrifyingly vulnerable like what if i wasn't ceo anymore yeah. what if i was just john yeah like shit that's yeah. terrifying what if i'm just john who lives in an average two-bed house like and that's where the about being being content and okay with who you are as being ultimate kind of striving at success for me sure um because actually if you're okay with that you can weather what life throws at you because you have a solid base in who you are as a person absolutely i don't know many people who've just gone like from like having everything to say and i'm done with this job i'm done with work i'm going to live a more minimalist life but i do know a lot of people that have over time scraped away at the layers yeah. and they suddenly realize that okay i can downgrade my car i can live a more basic life i don't need all these fancy clothes and over time yeah you just start to have like the key essentials around you and you spend more time with your family and all these things, but it's a long old process, but it all starts with waking up. And sometimes life will apply, the often, not even sometimes, often life applies the brakes for you. Like oh, yeah. I work with a lot of very different sure. people and particularly in the COVID, you know, post-COVID or COVID world, you know, a lot of people I've worked with, they've had COVID, they've been knocked out for a few weeks. They haven't been able to exercise in the way they would have done. They yeah. haven't been able to distract themselves with work and exercise and all those things and they've had to stop and the world has come crashing in because all of a sudden <laughs> i can't play smack yeah. the rat at the fair anymore i can't keep those things down i've been in bed for two weeks with yeah. nothing but my head and that's like boom i was trying <laughs> really to think of anybody i know that's had a real tr healthy transformation that hasn't been from a real place of pain yeah you're right like i mean i guess you wouldn't really go to therapy unless something was wrong um I think that's changing. Okay. I don't think it's changing dramatically, but I think it will in time. If you think about American culture, particularly. Everyone's in yeah. therapy there, yeah, right? but I yeah. think that's not... But it don't know. work. Well. Not in America. Maybe because it's so accessible. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But America, America's a great example of how not to do things. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. fucking like, look at the health over there. It's, it's an amazing example of yeah. what all this luxury can give you. Yeah. Like, yeah. we definitely shouldn't be, uh, I don't think, putting our eyes in their direction. No, for sure. but I think there is something about seeing, like, we talked about the idea of gym membership. Yes. You know, that idea that we invest in our physical health in ways like that. Definitely. And we don't necessarily think, even if it's not going to see therapy, you know, when I, when I finish working with somebody, we construct what I call a staying well plan which is about, exactly as you would in the gym really, a personal training plan. So it's about what do you need to do to keep maintaining this progress? What do you need to build on it? What other things could you work on? And reflecting on what they've learned in the process of therapy. And a big part of that conversation is often about, you've made a real commitment coming to therapy. You've maybe made an hour every week or every other week for six months. Um, can we protect that time? Can we ring fence it? Because you found that time from somewhere so you know can we get to the point where once a week or once a fortnight you're taking yourself off to mm. a cafe or even in your room at home or whatever and doing some journaling reflecting back on okay where am i at like it's been a busy week how am i doing emotionally how am i doing physically what have i neglected a bit what i'm losing track of what are my stats really <laughs> you know, yeah I, lo up? I love that approach the cynical part of me and again through years of coaching knows that most people after time probably won't do that with the accountability or inspiration or support of a community or an environment that encourages those behaviors so i have therapy every week for exactly what you said it's for me it's just like going yeah. to the gym yeah 
and I'm, I and I, d I want to go, so it's definitely accountability is not the main driver. But sometimes when it would be easier to back out, I'm like, no, I've got my session with Aidan. Yeah, it's in the diary, same time yeah. every week, so yeah. there's no excuses about oh, I've got busy with work. That's for me the only thing that's ever really stayed concrete. And then yeah. being around other guys that are like open to that kind of development yeah. too, like yeah, I want to become a better person too. Yeah, and that becomes the norm. Can you imagine trying to? do everything you've just said whilst you've got like screaming kids and maybe <laughs> yeah. a, a husband or a wife who isn't on board and you feel like you're battling on your own to become better when no one else around you wants to make those changes too. Yeah, it's hard isn't it yeah because we all exist in part of a system yes um and it's kind of recognizing and the change the positive change that's had for you and things like the journaling that you talked about that's why it's really useful we talked about the idea that people often are quite have quite a negative focus in that journal and if you're focusing on the more self-compassionate positive change that's happening that's more likely to keep you motivated because you'll have that daily reminder of the change that has happened mm. but if we always squash the negative and the distress then we also lose focus on the thing that perpetuated us there anyway it's a bit like um just trying to think so, you know, it's really common that people I work with will have a really acute, really awful depressive episode and they'll go, you know, we'll be talking about it in that final session of constructing that staying well plan and I'll ask them about early warning signs and things that were going on when they first came to see me and they'll say, I don't want to think about that. I was like, it's really important you mm. think about that because you need to know what that looks like. You need to remember, have an emotional memory for what that felt like and looks like because of the that's pain you mean yeah, yeah because that's what it's part of who you are don't uh, try and erase it don't try and squash it it's part of that process and listening to it will help you identify early on if it starts to come back yes do you think there's an argument here of why like everyone should have some kind of target or direction or purpose to focus on so that you you do have the fear behind you saying look you know if you behave in your old ways, you, yeah. you'll get back there. But if you turn your head this way and you have something positive and purposeful to focus on, we can put more attention to actually, like, let's chase some good things in life that, that require you to dig in and have resilience yeah. and use that pain that you've experienced to drive. But we can't just be floating with heads above water every yeah. day and hoping not to go back. And I don't think anybody naturally wants to do that. But I think that idea of it having to come from a place of fear is interesting because it can come from a place of compassion in that I care about myself enough not to ever want to put myself in the position to go back there. Yeah, 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 no, I totally understand Does that, that. make sense? Of course it does, yeah. I mean, so the outcome is the same. You still don't want sure. to go back there, yeah, yeah. but it's not... But then the question would know, be, well, shit, where I've do got I want to keep doing go, this, otherwise right? I'm going to... Yeah, yeah, there has to be a yeah. sense of direction. And sometimes people don't know what, that what they, they know... It's as useful to know you don't want what you've currently got Definitely. <laughs> as not knowing. Yeah, it's a great way of going, you know, like having a yeah, look at what you want in life. Yeah. For a lot of people that I work with, life has been shit. Mm. Like they have really had poor, for no fault of their own, had really, you know, bad hands drawn to them in life. And I ask them what they want to be or where they want to be. And they genuinely, quite rightly, have no idea because yeah. they don't even consider that things could be better because their life experience has told them if I work towards something or I dream about something or I want something, then it n never happens. And there's kind of a real fear around even aspiring to have something different because it's too painful to consider the disappointment that would happen if they, even being well, like totally. I've been depressed for 15 or 20 years. If I start to feel better, 
I don't know if I can cope with the fall of becoming depressed again. Like, yeah. it would be like being given the best Christmas present ever and then having it taken away in front of me. And it, and it does offer an air of predictability. I know it, had, did, it did for myself. It yeah. was, although it was miserable, it was, at least I knew what was coming. Yeah, it's and, familiar. And I, yeah, and I couldn't really envision a life without it. It was, it was strangely comforting in, in a really bizarre way. Yeah. Like, it's all I knew. Yeah. And yeah. outside of that, I didn't really know Uncertain, what existed. We're not programmed to like uncertainty. We hate it. It's, you know, again, it's that evolutionary thing. We want to know who our predators are, when they hunt, what they look like, what they smell like. Anything that's uncertain is often charged with threat. Yeah. Even if that uncertainty, as it often is in life, is really positive and we get good things from it. How do you know if someone's depressed? How do you know if somebody's depressed? Yeah, so let's just say someone's been really down mm -hmm. for three months, mm -hmm. struggling to get out of bed, yeah. eating crap, not taking care of themselves. Yeah. Like, is there a is there like a, a, a pro, like a, a list of symptoms? Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it depression if circumstances can change somebody's mood straight away? So that three month example I've just given you, let's just say that's a lad who's had his heart broken mm -hmm. and he's devastated, crushed, yeah. and like I say, yeah not getting out of bed not doing yeah. anything productive and you could probably say he's fallen into depression yeah but his girlfriend could pick the phone up and go i'm really sorry yeah i've made a terrible mistake i love you so much and all of a sudden boom that would be grief not depression right. yeah it so would be grief at the relationship right. ending yeah so depression is about that prolonged period and we all get low we all sure. get you know nobody's mood <laughs> you've got something to worry about if your mood is buoyant all the time yeah of course. <laughs> um that and that's why that paying attention to the kind of the organic fluctuating patterns of mood is really important because then you know not to get too panicked if you have a few days of being low that that is normal we all fluctuate in mood but i think certainly if somebody's struggling with mood over a, a more prolonged period of time two three four weeks if appetite's affected if sleep's affected motivation that kind of really strong cognitive bias that we talk about in cbt say so that the thinking it's just very hard to see positive in things really hard to get pleasure from things that you previously would have got pleasure from hard to motivate hard to concentrate and there's a measure called the phq9 which is kind of a standardized measure that all gps will use um, which is nine questions around right. um, measuring mood and it gives you a really quite a good indication and a platform to talking about. I think the important thing is you're just asking those things of yourself, but also of your loved ones if you're noticing. Like, it's okay to have that conversation. And irritability, people often, that fight and flight thing of mood, anxiety and depression always go together. You know, worked in mental health for 20 years, and right. I think I can probably count on one hand how many people I've seen who really have been only depressed or only anxious it's nearly always a combination of both because we get anxious about being depressed and we get depressed about being anxious um so irritability is a really key feature for a lot of people and that kind of just difficulty tolerate having tolerance for things being snappy being restless agitated not being able to concentrate and focus on different things hmm. Something that comes up often on the podcasts, which is always heavily debated, is the concept of free will. <laughs> okay. So I really wish or really want to believe that free will exists mm -hmm. because it means we all have options and choices in life. But when I hear some of the horror stories mm -hmm. from young, innocent children that have no yeah. 
input to where they were born, who they were born yep. to, and yep. just the rotten start they've had. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think that free will isn't as obvious as we like to think. Sp- like, you know, I've started doing a little bit of work with Molly, Molly's Ollies. Okay, yeah, Sorry. I saw that. Yeah, Molly, Molly's, yeah. Molly Ollies, yes. that's it. And, it, you know, children from 0 to 18 that have, like, terminal illness or yeah. life-threatening conditions. Yeah. And you're just like, that kid had no chance. Like, you know, some kids are dying at, like, three, four. And you just think, where's the free will there? Well, it's about... I guess they have no other lived experience of a different alternative. Like that is their life. You know, yeah. we all just one they never chose though, right? Yeah, one they never chose. So I'm like, okay, well let's just say it doesn't exist there. Does do you think it exists in all adults, just this regardless of some of the traumas and hardships that they've been through? Like can you really can you really transform if you've been through such shit in such a short time frame of a lifespan? absolutely you can but it depends on having the right it's an alchemy isn't it the right people the right place the right time and when that change happens for some people that change will happen quite close to the trauma i think that the last stats that i read is something i think i think it was 22 years on average in the nhs is 22 years between somebody having a significant trauma and seeking help Wow, 22 years just for reaching out let alone for doing that work so when they're in therapy doing the trauma focus work that's insane which is mad wow and it must have it must be 22 times worse um because surely it's manifested over time internalized and and if you think like if trauma shows its way like if if you behave differently because you have trauma let's just say you're irritable yeah. like if you think really think what that would yeah how that would impact your life like it could ruin relationships that not, might not have mm-hmm. been ruined so it could like impact your entire reality of Absolutely. what you're experiencing couldn't it yeah and i think that's that can be a real challenge because things like drugs and alcohol we talked about that idea of squashing you know hugely prevalent in traumatized um you know people have experienced a lot of trauma and traumatized kind of stories because it has been their only way mm. of coping. Um, so if you think about veterans, uh, particularly in that group, that's something that happens a lot. Um, but I think I think there is always the capacity to change, but I think it does depend on this combination of opportunity, time, place, and the thing that triggers that change as well, that for some people, they might have a life experience which sends them into a new path of being motivated to address that earlier on you know for other people that takes time you know sometimes things have to fall down again or the trauma has to be almost like reactivated by another Hmm. instant for them to realize it's there i feel like like if i live to like 80 which is like the average like i feel like I probably would have just got a handle on most shit (laughs) i mean it's like can i have another go with everything that i know because you could save yourself so much pain and suffering. But pain and suffering is a normal part of human existence. It we, is. We, we, we it don't, is. can't control it. We shouldn't want to control no. it. We shouldn't need to. But control some it. of it's surely self-inflicted, right? I like when I think of some of the things I've done in my life that have caused me the most down and depressed moments, like it has been uh, like a lack of responsibility, a lack of maturity, mm-hmm. and you could argue like that is a, an evolutionary process yeah. as well. But I still think with stronger guidance. I could have avoided a lot of those things. So is that something you could be self-compassionate to yourself about? Sure, and and I'm learning, yeah. That you, actually, you do. Yeah. I was 
yeah, I was making age-appropriate choices for somebody with my level of coping and, yeah. the, and the framework that I had to work with. I was doing the best I could. Yes, that sent me down paths I wouldn't choose again. But actually, I, maybe I wasn't fortunate enough to have a mentor who was guiding me in a healthier choices. Maybe I wasn't. I was just doing my 13-year-old or 14-year-old best. Yeah. Well, and the rest. Yeah, I wish it did then. But, you know, yeah. that is part... You can't do that. You can't change the fact you did those no. things and berating ourselves about it and being self-critical about it doesn't mean that it keeps you on track. It actually probably ends up yeah. sending to a place of... No, you're, you're so right. And there are so many positives to come from it too. Like I'm only yeah. doing this podcast because of certain kind of sufferings that yeah. I experienced and I thought, I know how horrible it is and it'd be nice to be able to maybe positively impact some of the guys' lives, especially yeah. young men. Yeah. So th there are there are plenty of positives to come from it. Do you, uh, how many children do you have? Two. Are they social media users? Uh, no, they're too young really at the moment. Uh, how um, are you going to manage that? Because it's terrifying. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. Um, my, my eldest is six and she's very aware of, tiktok already and instagram and stuff because i use some of those platforms for my therapy and coaching business so um yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be hard mm. i think lots of conversations about the reality of things and i do wonder if in time there will be some shift whether it will be for her generation or for her children's but i think there is definitely some polarization in the way younger people using social media. There's a very authentic, real kind of backlash to the filtered artificial. Yeah. Um, but then there is still that very driven perfectionistic filtered within an inch of your life um, way of approaching things. So I think that polarization is, I'm certainly starting to see you know, um, I'm particularly interested in neurodiversity and autism and ADHD and, um, you know, I follow some really inspirational young people with Instagram accounts for those things and they are absolutely, like, they are using it to their optimum. They are absolutely real and authentic and it's really fabulous to see them coming through. Do you ever get caught distracted in social media and stuff what getting pulled into it yeah all just, the time right yeah so, so do <laughs> i and i like to think i'm quite aware and switched on so i i always think well how the hell would a 13 year old it's designed to be that way oh yeah for sure yeah, you know it, it's so i mean there's one you get like social approval like that's great and then you've got the unpredictability of like is this post going to reach likes is it not yeah. and those little unpredictable spikes of dopamine yeah. are really addictive yeah, rather are. than just yeah i know it's coming it's like what's the response going to be yeah it's so yeah so it's like how what what is the way out of this because social media is something that's both harmful and beneficial so it's like there's a whole mix of arguments in there as to why we should keep it why we should probably manage it a bit better i just can't help going back to the data i think that's telling us that something is severely wrong. Yeah. And I think as adults, we're, we're not playing any better of a game than the teenagers. I don't think we're no. in a position. No, I don't yeah. think, I think we're all guilty. Yeah. I think there's definitely somewhere about, it's an easy, quick fix for squashing. It's a really accessible right. way to distract and squash. 
difficult stuff that's in your pocket all of the time um and the solutions that are healthier take time and need space um and even simply getting into some good routines in your week about putting some restrictions around it or having a night a week with your partner where you don't have your phones sure (laughs) you know just small tweaks like that and also with you know young people having very transparent conversations about filters about sponsorship of products about you know so that right from the off they see it for what it is yeah i'm a fan of hard rules when it comes to anything like that's addictive or social media so if i said alex you can have one hour on social media today i i know i'm i'm really disciplined in most areas but i know over time that will stretch yeah so i'm much better off having a clear like you delete instagram after you've posted yeah, all or nothing yeah it has to be yeah. because they're so smart and intelligent yeah that they will they will beat my willpower yeah. they will beat my strategies they know you know they tap into those human emotions yeah. of social approval and yeah. so on so i know that i can't beat it i've tried and tried and tried and tried so i've put all sorts of uh, things in place like i don't have a news feed i haven't seen the news feed for years i don't have the apps on my phone uh, and that's the only way that i've really um managed it but it's also having it linked to that bit of awareness that we talked about and being more mindful. And we haven't really talked much about mindfulness, but it's a really important component part of that idea of self-compassion. Being more mindful about how you value things and what you're getting from something and whether it serves you. So if you're yeah, more yeah. aware in the moment of using social media, why have I picked my phone up? Okay, I'm having a crappy thought about looking shit today um so i'm gonna go back to that picture of my post that i posted myself and see how many likes i've got for example that would be a really kind of basic example if you're aware of that then you can then be better placed to offer yourself something to see that self-esteem issue rather than getting tapped into the phone which then sends you right back to the place because when is there ever enough likes when is there ever enough comments um and being more mindful of that helps you to think the same with tv actually and any of those kind of more passive activities is that we kid ourselves we're watching those things or but how often do you remember them how often are you really engaged in them um we're not we just no. do it to zone out there's often multiple devices yeah. on at once and yeah yeah you're uh, like the there's an emotional eating coach that i work with and he said something that's never kind of left my mind he said like if the sandwich is in your hand it's too late like yeah. you're going to eat it yeah. and social media is no different that gap between awareness and picking yeah. the phone up that question i love i've started to ask myself that question it's hard because you have to you have to make sure you ask the question before you're on it yeah like why am i going on facebook specifically yeah. what are you going on there to do and if it's a task or a job but what's even amazing like sometimes i'll go on saying this is what i've got to do yeah and honestly, within 10 seconds, I'm doing something yes. other than that main yeah. task. Yeah. But how the fuck have they done this? It's because it's seen as a, it pulls you into a sense of urgency and there isn't any urgency yeah. about it. There's nothing on fire. But that idea, like you talked about that idea of being self-aware in the moment and asking yourself that question. When I practice mindfulness, I'm really visual as a person. <laughs> so I kind of imagine this green laser beam. I don't know why it's green, but it is. Like a beam me up Scotty beam that goes through my body. And I think three questions. So how am I feeling physically? So do I need to offer myself anything physically? So that might be noticing I'm thirsty, noticing I've got a headache and taking a paracetamol, am I hungry? What's going on for me emotionally? Um, so how am I feeling? What am I noticing in my body? Am I a bit palpitation today? Am I feeling a bit lethargic? Am I, you know, what's that about? 
And then given those bits of information, what do I need right now? Mm. And then making that self-caring choice about what you actually need. And that might be an app. It might be that glass of water. It might be the paracetamol. It might be actually I'm really distracted and ruminating about that comment that that friend said to me last week that I haven't addressed with them actually I need to have it out with them and when do you ask it. yourself this when you feel like you need to or is it a daily practice so I do it daily yeah, yeah. so um there's I mean we, in therapy we use something called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy which is kind of a medicalized approach to the buddhist tradition of philosophy of the buddhist philosophy of meditation um but for me I use what works for me practically is what we call mindful activity. So I punctuate my day, if you like, with very short little bursts of mindfulness. So it might be um, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, a minute and a half. And I connect them to things that I know I do every day. So they get done. And it's a really useful way to check in with yourself throughout the day so that you're not getting to the position where those difficult things are rolling and gaining power because like a avalanche the the longer it rolls for the more powerful it is um and you can be self-caring in terms of your intervention and get in there and nip it in the bud quickly so for me showering i do mindfully brushing my teeth i do mindfully going for a wee going for a wee is great because you know you're going to go for a wee at yeah. least four or five times a day hopefully more if you're properly yeah. hydrated um and literally i will sit on the loo i will think about how my bum feels on the cold toilet seat the feet on the floor the sound around me the sensation as i empty my bladder literally and while i'm doing that nobody notices if you're in the loo 30 seconds longer they're not going to think anything strange about it i'm just using that opportunity as time to check in how am i doing what do I need? Literally as simple as that. Because if you're catching that early on, if I take those paracetamol when I first had that niggly headache, I haven't ran three, two therapy sessions. And by that point, I'm massaging my temples in the last 10 minutes of the session, not able to concentrate on that client because I've got a raging headache and I've just in the busyness of life not attended to that really basic need. Yeah, I think uh, attaching it to like previous... Uh, or already cemented habits is a real smart move it's you know it's what we call habit stack so yeah. something that's already there like if you can yep. integrate it with that because one of one of the difficulties for yourself and, and for for what i do is it's not always teaching the strategies it's teaching how to implement them so let's take meditation for example if we ask somebody everybody to do yep. a minute of meditation yeah yes meditation could be tricky but the art of meditation itself isn't a difficult thing it's the creation of the habit yeah that's often harder. So it's like, well, do we teach the strategies or do we teach people how to implement the habit? And that's why you, why you have to meet people where they're at. Yeah. Like, I, you can have a textbook approach to it. There's no point in me. So I can recommend some really good literature on mindfulness. I can tell you how a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course would teach you how to do it. Um, but chances are you'll throw a baby out with bathwater. You won't do it because it's too big a commitment. You can't make it work in your life part of the reason why you're coming to see me anyway is because life is busy mm. <laughs> so let's think about meeting you where you're at at the moment so if you were going to make a commitment to this idea of being mindful realistically how much time could you find to do it how much time could we carve out of a day to make it happen yeah. that might be if we're being realistic that might be five minutes or how much time are you willing to i guess as well right yeah because yeah. could yeah could's a bit of a strange word for me because it's like well i could i could do half an hour yeah mm -hmm. what am i willing to do hmm but could is, yeah, could is about cho implies choice, which is the reality situation, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Willing means, okay, yeah. I'm on board. Go, I'm, yeah, going to yeah. make my commitment. There's loads of things I should and could do. Yeah. There's loads of things everybody should and could do. It's like, okay, that's cool. But it, it sounds like there's more intent with, oh, I'm willing to, yeah. I'm going to. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of like catch myself saying that all the time. Or I need to, and I'm, yeah. I'm like, well, if I needed to, I'll, I would be. Yeah. So it's just yeah, having a step back and having a look at um that, and then I always look at okay, if I'm struggling for time, if I'm ever time poor, I always have a look at how I'm spending it or tr or, mm -hmm. or investigate. Same as if I'm if I'm money poor, I'm like, okay, let's yes. have a real good look at this. Where's my money going? Yeah. Where's my time going? Where's my energy going? And you you always catch little areas that you can can improve. And yeah. this is where I do like the the strive and yeah. drive just to continuously spend time in some introspection and question what you're doing with your yeah. time yeah. so again it's like there's so many good examples of where it's not good to strive and then where it really is yeah. but I think all the answers are found in asking good questions and having a having a look at yourself yeah I think that idea of self-reflection is really important it's yeah. it's yeah it's huge and, yeah. It, and it's skill so with with the variety of clients that you see on a daily basis like do you have completely different methods for everyone or do you have a preferred system i.e cbt like i mean predominantly i'm a cbt therapist so that's not my core training but um yeah i think you work quite idiosyncratically with people so it depends on what they're yeah. coming with um what that you know the C of cognitive behavioral therapy so the cognitive bit for a lot of people they find it really hard to access their thoughts or some people are quite emotionally blunted. Like I can ask them, okay, how did you feel about that? Well, I was thinking, no, how did you feel about it? Well, I was, no, how we, and you, it's like, they just haven't got a vocabulary for that. They find it really difficult. So you just, ha again, you have to meet somebody where they're at really. And sometimes that might be very behavioral heavy. Sometimes that might be very cognitively heavy. Um, sometimes it might be very emotionally focused, uh, very much around mindfulness and tolerating emotions and sitting with it and validating somebody's experience. Um, but I'd say predominantly I use CB a CBT framework with a good dollop <laughs> of compassion mm. and a good dollop of mindfulness in the mix, which are quite, um, a, in lots of ways, are quite opposing kind of pictures because CBT is very problem focused. It's very right. Western. Okay. There is a problem. This is how you fix it. Right. Um, and compassion and mindfulness are very much around tolerating it and sitting with it. What's the biggest difference you've noticed between your male and female clients in terms of maybe acceptance, dealing with these issues, being open to dealing with these issues? Is there a difference? Um, yeah, I think guys come later. Okay. Things are worse before they come. Fear-based? Um, some of it fear-based some of it shame-based yeah because when we say stubborn is that would you class that as fear too well in, in this context yeah i i should be able to fix it myself sure yeah well why i'm an intelligent okay. man why can't i do this yeah um yeah so men will ask later and sometimes um just the busyness of things maybe they are the breadwinner in the family maybe their work you know part of the reason they're there is because they have very busy occupations so it's just not seen as a priority they're just mm. in this treadmill of keep going keep going keep going keep going keep going they're treading water all the time and it's not until they have a life event like being physically ill or whatever that they're kind of forced to or they retire that's a really common one right because <laughs> that mission and purpose has yeah been taken that's away, it, right? exactly um and i've been waiting i've been waiting for this magical moment of retirement for 25 years and now it's here 
Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever feel sorry for people who find themselves in those situations where they might have had the career, but then they come to the end and they're like, fuck. Um, like, do you ever sit there and like just f- like tune in with how they f- feel? Like, does it affect you? Um, I think that's part of being a therapist is holding that emotional space for somebody and being right? sitting sit with them yeah. it, with it. Um, I think it's a. I think that again is a really big thing that can prevent people coming because it's a big thing to sit with the grief attached to the fact that you might have given up twenty five years to something you didn't want to do it's brave yeah. <laughs> you know to acknowledge you sure know, i I, cho- I made some choices and continue to make them and again it's about compassionately encouraging them to see y- the choices you made at the beginning you made for good reason like you thought you were going to enjoy this you know you did it and then you had a family so it was about providing for that there will always be a reason why somebody's maintained it and it can be really easy to see what they've lost in a situation um, and really hard to connect with what they might have got from it, mm. even if what they've got from it is the learning that they have now about what they really value. Would you ever be so direct into like saying or thinking that some of it is down to courage? So if if after twenty five, if if you've been in the job for twenty five years, but after twelve, mm-hmm. you know it's not the right thing, but it's always been fear based reasons that you haven't left. Like if we stripped all the BS down and went, well, actually, if you'd have just been a bit braver. Some of it can be about courage. Some of it can be about kind of ghosts in the nursery. So your own stuff of what is expected from you. It might actually be what is expected from you and what is needed for you. If you are the breadwinner and you are father to children with additional needs Mm. and your partner stays at home with them and hasn't had a career or doesn't currently have a career because actually the children's needs dictate that, that's not necessarily about courage that's about necessity at that point to maybe keep doing that and actually the courageous thing might be to acknowledge yes i'm in this process of doing this i don't want to be doing it but right now this is what i'm choosing to do because we're having to but i'm gonna put a mark in the diary for four years time or whatever you know does that make sense it, no totally i guess the purpose has changed there from the purposes i need to support my family yes exactly and therefore i will be willing to do everything that i can to do that yeah it always interests me like because i'm not a, i'm not a dad and i always think you know are the actions that i'm taking what i would encourage yes any of my children yeah. to potentially have and, and when you think about that idea of self-compassion i think that's a really useful way to switch on that compassionate muscle is would I be whispering this in the ear of a child? Well, <laughs> Probably yeah. not. Certainly not yeah. the way that we speak to ourselves. And yeah. if even if you think about how we motivate children in classrooms, we don't say you should be doing more of this. You need, you know, you, you must do this homework. You, you were encouraging yeah. them to think about why. Have you always been so empathetic, or do you, um, or, or rather, like, is it something that you can learn? Have you taught yourself I how to be more empathetic, or has it just been a natural trait? Um, and is it more of a feminine trait I think it has I think if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view it's more advantageous in the fe- in the feminine tribal community to sure. be, have empathy yeah. you know because that that masculine component of the tribe is about competition is about being alpha male is about 
Um, so I think that might, you know, can be a challenge for men to work with that evolutionary drive. Yeah. Um, I think naturally I've, yeah, I guess it's part of my personality. It's what led me to be a therapist probably. You're not sure. likely to be a therapist, I guess, if you aren't comfortable in sitting with emotion and having empathy for situations. Mm. But I guess in too much is probably not helpful either, right? I, in a therapy sense. It can be really, yeah, yeah. it can be difficult. Um, I'm sure, but yeah. you can't unknow things, unsee things, unfeel things. It's part of what makes you a good therapist is being able to connect with that and people really getting you get it. Yeah. Um, and that comes with time and experience, you know, holding that space and it not impacting you personally is something that we used, you know, we're very fortunate as therapists to have clinical supervision and we have training around that. Um, but that is something you definitely develop with more experience that you get that that stuff I can hold that stuff for you and I can I can um, validate it and I can see it it's visible to me but I don't have to hold it on your behalf all yeah. the time because I have confidence in you that you have the capacity to hold it for yourself what's man's biggest challenge right now so the male clients that come into to, to the therapy room and see you what's what's their biggest challenge and what's driving the high rate of suicides i think there's a lot of pressure around role and you know thinking about a lot of the men that i work with it's around that kind of role diversity i'm expected to be a great dad i'm expected to be you know even if it's self-expectation the breadwinner i'm expected to be buff i'm expected to be that you know it's a lot of pressure um and actually people feeling like there isn't enough time or they haven't got the capability for that is quite common i think how do we make that better um do we expect less of men or more i think we allow them to be human <laughs> sure <laughs> Do you ever feel like we're going against nature a little bit, though, and we're trying to push people into areas that probably just isn't natural? In what way? In terms of, like, roles. Like, so now it's more acceptable for a man not to be a typical man or have those masculine traits. Like, there's sometimes maybe we feel like we should have to suffocate them, perhaps, mm -hmm. or not be the go-getter or not be the mission-driven guy or not be the one who is... Yeah, I want to be the breadwinner. I, I want to take responsibility. I don't think that's so much about a gender argument. I think that's more about a values-based argument. And if we focus on what people really value, then you can't go wrong whether they're male or female. So what's, you know, what is integral to who you are as a person? And that, whether you're male or female, that might be about nurturing. It might be about building a family. It might be about providing it might be about nature it might be about being physically active but yeah. if you stick to that value space and structure your choices around that then you can't go far wrong really yes but aren't those values kind of wrapped up in like whether you've got feminine or masculine traits so if you're feminine your values are more going to be on the nurture side whereas if you're masculine then your values are more going going to be driven more towards mission and purpose like isn't that what nature is there's mission and purpose to family and nurturing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but again, you might uh, a masculine and, um, uh, trait might be the way that I value my family is to provide. Yeah. Therefore, my mission is boom X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily a trait or an expectation, a, 
an idea of that because again there's different ways you can provide are we talking about providing financially are we talking about providing emotional safety and comfort are we talking about so I think you can be you can provide as a father highly effectively and may never work you might be a stay-at-home dad you're still providing a really important function for that family just not in a material way that makes sense no it does it does make sense that doesn't happen very often though right i think it happens it's happening more i've got quite a lot of friends who did share yeah but that's what i mean isn't that in alignment with all the stats going the wrong way like aren't we heading in a direction where we're all getting what we think we want which is to move away from traditional roles but everything's pointing towards well actually something's severely wrong here because men don't actually know what the fuck to do now women probably the same right this isn't like oh men are haven't got their shit sorted and women have I don't think it's that at all I think everyone's a bit confused but I think I think you're I think that's why thinking about it as an idea of a role is where we go wrong it's thinking about it as an idea of a set of values and hanging stuff on that is more helpful that makes sense I just would question where those values come from like isn't there a certain amount of nature that determines why your values are are driven some of that will be and some of it will be nature as well yeah I mean we're all biologically set up like you talked about my trait as empathy you know i'm unlikely to be in a highly competitive corporate industry um yeah because of that yeah because it's not something i value right i value connection with people relationships authenticity so my career has led me to something it's pinned around those things sure you're very self-aware aren't you like that's a skill you've clearly worked so hard to get to that level where you go these are my values and i'm gonna live in alignment with those things yeah but they still trip me up all the time like, yeah sure you but you know they do yeah and that's what yeah that's why and you're good at what you I do i still right? have to question all the time is is this continuing to serve me yeah. is, is this moving me to where towards i want to be and when i say where i want to be i mean in terms of feeling content and happy yeah. and well yeah a wellness continuum yeah um or is it moving me away from it yeah i think there's fear based around even conversation now like i think a lot of people are just scared to just openly talk about things without the whole need to be right yeah it's like i think it's good to discuss these roles and whether they're helpful uh, and go into those conversations without thinking you know what is 100 percent right something really stuck uh, we did snowden um about two weeks ago and there was there's 40 of us the majority were guys some, some of the guys brought their girlfriends it was was amazing and on the way up we were about half an hour from the top of Snowdon so we were all pretty tired at this point and there was a young lad he must have been seven or eight coming down with his mum just the two of them and I said to him I said mate well done you should be really proud of yourself like to get to there I said it's not easy and his mum said well we we didn't get to the top we he's tired so I was like right okay I said dude how are you gonna feel when you get home do you sure you don't want to it's only half an hour like you know you You'll be happy when you get up there. It's going to be tough. Your legs are going to burn. But I think you should come. And his mum asked him, and she said, like, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to go down. And his mum, being a good mum, went, of course I'll take you down. Let, let's go home. Now, I think, like, a masculine influence there would have said, listen, son, I know you're tired. But we've got to get you to the top of that mountain because you're going to feel so happy with yourself once you've pushed yourself through that little bit of discomfort. And I wanted to will this young lad up. Because, again, I could see myself then when I was young. Well, I was just going to say, was that about what he wanted or what about what you wanted? Yeah, but you, do you know what you want when you're seven? Or is it about what you need? Because I didn't want to go um, swimming. 
I didn't want to go boxing. I didn't want to climb a mountain. So I didn't have to. But I think that's also about the importance of validating an experience and teaching our young people that if they're listening... Where's the teaching there? Well, if he, he was listening to how he was feeling and he was expressing it and his mum was right. hearing it yeah. and supporting him with that. Mm. Is that helpful for his future growth or maybe. hindering him? Maybe. See, I, this is where I really disagree on this. When I think young men need encouraging to push themselves. Most men don't push themselves now. They just don't. They want everything to be comfortable and they don't want to face any adversity or like we spoke about, these feelings of discomfort. Everyone tries to avoid them. And it's like, well, this is a healthy way of confronting discomfort. It gets you fit. It gets you mentally tough. And you're going to prove to yourself that, oh, I can do it. They're all the skills men are lacking now. All of them. This is what's harmful. Mm. I think think they work for some people and I think they work for you and I think you've developed a really effective toolkit that work for you and they may well work for lots of people I have to be careful before I say it's been really effective for me because I don't really know the answer all I know is well it's made my life better I yeah. think yeah. I don't know you can't run a parallel no. No, none of us can run so a parallel. I'm very yeah. cautious about yeah. saying yeah. oh no my way has been great for me because it's, it's had its yeah you know I've almost swung the other way where I've become a little bit too like yeah and that's that's my yes. point about the danger of that drive bit. Yeah, it is. But that's where I think the role of parents is so useful. It's like mum should be the one that's maybe a little bit more empathetic. Maybe dad can do the opposite and offer him that mental resilience. So therefore, he's got both skills. Most men don't have both skills because they weren't taught them. So because the average man doesn't push himself, the average son doesn't push himself. I see it all the time. It's really sad. It's actually sad because it doesn't make your life any better to live in fear because you're scared to do anything. You're scared of failing, which is the main thing. Like people are so scared of failing, I get it. But it yeah. stops you from doing anything. And then you feel like shit and you don't like your life. But I guess there's there's degrees of the push, isn't there? The, the degrees of the goal. For him, walking to the top of Snowden might never have been the valued goal. What he might have valued about that experience was being out in nature, spending quality time with his mum. Okay, being yeah. physically active he might have reached what he valued from that activity without reaching the top for you you're a complete finisher finishing yeah. the task is what's important for you it's what you value that sense of achievement he might not have that performance driven mm. value system for him that he might have got everything he wanted out of that experience simply by mm. hanging out with his mum for an mm. hour yeah I, I'd never thought about it like that the only, I guess, other caveats that would be like, well, do, do we not install the values into our children? So therefore, could he have not got all those things and the completion by getting to the top? He could have done. I mean, you're right. He might have had the best fucking day ever because he was hanging out with his <laughs> mum. I don't know the background. He might not have seen his mum or hung exactly. out with his mum. I don't know. I just couldn't help but just want to encourage this guy to the top and say, come with me, mate. Come on. You can fucking do this. Yeah. Which is Which I think he may well have found helpful but i think it's also being self-aware about how much of that pull sometimes that disproportionate maybe desire to want somebody else to do it might be about our own stuff oh it's it's a mirror yeah for sure and i i, I know that and i got i've got to get better at being okay with okay kid like yeah you don't want to do it do you think then there's like a direction like the, you know when you talk about knowing yourself and and so on is it best for someone like myself just to say, look guys, like you will work with me if you want to fucking push yourself 
But if you don't, that's totally cool. I'm not the guy who, who well, wants people, to lead you. Well, people will naturally gravitate towards you yeah. who want what you provide. Yeah. That's why you say what I notice is that people are lacking that. That's because disproportionately you will see people who struggle with motivation and that's why they seek you out. Got you. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah. your perception of what is out there is distorted because you can we can only ever experience what we're party to. We don't know what we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And the people that you're naturally will naturally gravitate towards you and seek you out will mm. be probably lacking in those things because they see that in you sure. and that's why they're seeking you out in the first place. I wanna help everyone. It's hard <laughs> and I can't. Yeah. Help yourself first. Uh, no, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I just yeah. I would love us all as just a community's environment to just try and be more positive and just do nicer things. And yeah. Sometimes that's my downfall. I want to drag everyone with me. And it's tiring. <laughs> it is tiring. It is tiring. And but they make sure they're being asked to be rescued before sure. you rescue them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll reflect on that story. You'll be thinking about that a little. I'll just enjoy this trip out with his mum. Maybe. Yeah. Again, we'll never know. Maybe I should have dragged him to the top and he'd have thanked me for it. He might have done. Who knows? He knows. But I guess he weren't my kid. Yeah. I just, I just know the uh, the value of having someone lead well. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe he appreciates he has somebody who does that lead well, but something outside physical. Yeah. Maybe it's in the maths or in science or in music. And you're right. And his mum might have led the line perfectly that day by saying, let's let's go to the mountain yeah. and get some fresh air and we'll, we'll spend some time together. Just enjoy the day. So that told me. <laughs> it wasn't my intention. Just it's no, useful it's to good. reflect. Of course it's useful it is. to reflect. Well, this is why I love these conversations because you, like I had this tunnel of like my view there and then conversation just, if you listen to it, it just can just sometimes open yeah. your way and and then you start saying, oh, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, but it's explained well. But this is what healthy conversation is about. Like, we probably don't agree on everything, right? Yeah. You can tell. <laughs> but it's really healthy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's okay to have those people, that, you know, perspectives. That's what brings the diversity of life, of communities, all those things. Some things yes. will work for some people. And it isn't about dictating this is the right way to reach this thing. I think if you're authentic about what you value and you stay true to it, you will seek out your tribe. And your tribe will lead you in the way that will help you. Um, but it's about slowing down the process and being self-reflective enough to realise what you really value and what you need. We need to capture that last one. A <laughs> uh, couple more questions, if I may. I know yep. we've, we've gone 90 minutes and yeah, there's probably lots more to cover as well. Um, what's next for you? Uh, what's next for me? Yeah, um, personal, professional, or wh whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Continuing to try and juggle the balls of life <laughs> and keep two small Always. humans alive. Um, yeah, professionally, I'm developing more kind of workshop-based stuff around compassion. I'm doing some workshops on emotional eating, actually, and stuff in the autumn and the idea of squashing that we talked about, not just eating, but squashing generally. Um, and just continuing to kind of enjoy a balance, really, of individual and workshop-based work, because I really enjoy the workshop-based work and developing that in a more virtual platform so it's a bit more accessible for people Sounds in great. their busy working lives. Yes, mm. and then final, this is a traditional better man question. I know we've tried to kind of like dodge around the strive, but what do you need to work on next in order to become a better person? Um, not practicing what I preach. <laughs> okay, tell me more. Uh, so I probably need to put some more boundaries in about my own self-care time. That's okay. something that I'm inherently bad at and I have to keep coming back to and back to and back to all the time. 
Um, and what I have been successful in doing is really reconnecting with my creative self. And I think that's been really beneficial. I need to keep doing more of that because mm. whenever I'm creative, I'm a better back. How do you like to create? Uh, anyway, I love yeah. photography. I like just my mind is naturally creative. So just okay. thinking about things in a creative way. The self-care issue, I have to literally wake up and remind myself each day. Yeah. Like, yeah, I have to win my will each day to yeah. take care of myself. It's the crazy. Number one on the to-do list is yeah. a self-care action each yeah, day. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, it was great talking to you. Yeah, it was lovely I to talk to you it. too. And, and keep helping people. You clearly do a fantastic job. And you? You've touched thousands of people's lives, so it's it's cool to sit and pick your brains and learn from you. So I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Good. It's been cool. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. That's all right.